It says, For God hath put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So God has put into the king's heart, the ten kings, the ten horns, uh, to cure, into their hearts to carry out whose purpose? His purpose, his will. Hi. Hey, guys. So when talking about God's will, um, I, I like this uh, statement. Maybe. Get it. God's will is identical with his being, his wisdom, his goodness, and with all his attributes. I'm fishing for dogs. Then it says, as it is for this reason that man's heart and mind can rest in that will. For it is not the will, for it is the will not of blind faith, incalculable fortune, or dark energy of nature, but an omnipotent God and merciful Father. So God's will is a good thing that we can rest in because God has shown himself to be good, right? So what God does is good by definition. And his will is uh, walking out in all lives, and we can find rest in that. And that, that's a good premise on God's will. And here on God's will, God's purpose is he's placing his will, his purpose in the mind of ten, these ten kings. Are these good kings or bad kings? In Revelation 17, 17. They're bad guys, right? Yeah, they're a confederacy or kingdoms, right? Again, allied against God, but he's using them to judge Babylon, right? So God's will is that the ten kings destroy Babylon as instruments of his judgment, thus fulfilling his word. Does that make sense? You, you tracking with that? And that's challenging because that seems like, well, is God willing something bad to happen, right? And yet he's not, it's not bad that Babylon is being judged, right? Because Babylon, however you take it, right, uh, is evil, right, and deserves judgment. Does that make sense? And how God chooses to execute that judgment um, is up to him, right? So he chooses to use evil forces to execute judgment upon evil forces. So let's do a survey of God's will, okay? So we're going to go through, we're going to start with the Old Testament, and we're going to do a survey uh, of God's will to build a foundation to understand how his will acts upon his creation. And we'll end up doing this foundation so then we can tell talk about how all will correlates. Lots of times we want to create tension between, like, opposition. But we're going to try to actually see where Scripture talks about how all will or huma human will correlates with God's will. It's not in direct opposition. As we go through the, the Scripture references for God's will and, and 
and well. We're going to see that. But we're going to start with God's will. We're, gonna, we're not going to get all through the Old Testament today, but we're going to cover um, part of it. Any questions so far or comments? Yeah, all things work together for our good and his glory. Yeah. And I would just put a caveat there that it's our eternal good and his glory. Um, okay, so there is no one-to-one equivalent for the word will in the Hebrew language. So I can't just say this what we have will and this is the Hebrew word for will and then go look at that Hebrew word every single time. There's no one-to-one equivalent. So that makes our job a little harder because there are nine Hebrew words that express the idea of will depending on the context. So it's not always meaning uh, will, like we use the word will. You have to, it de- the context determines the meaning of the word, which is the same with any word. Um, but the noun, those two nouns, hephes, which means delight or pleasure, and then ransom, which means favor. But it's not always actually translated as delight or pleasure or favor, but those would be its base meaning. The verbs are hepes for desire, so that's the counterpart, the hepes, or to take pleasure in, or rasa, which is the counterpart to the noun rasan, to be pleased with. And then there are several other verbs that talk of will in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew language. So Abba, or Ava, if you wanted to say it with the V sound, uh, which means consent or be willing. Hifl, uh, with the hifl of Ya'al, which means to begin or intend. And then Baha, which means to choose. And then Ahab, which means to love. And then Hasek. It's just love or desire. And all these can carry the, the definition of will. And so we're going to begin to look at these when they come in contact with God and him acting in his will. Okay? So it's not that simple. I like it, would like it to be, but it's not. The concept of, he- of will in the Hebrew mind and thought is not even all concept of will. We have a very individualistic concept of will, right? And in Hebrew thought and in the Old Testament, the concept of (coughs) individual will is not as prevalent. And that's part of the reason why they don't have one word, right, to express it. Does that make sense? (coughs) So let's take a look at these usages in the Old Testament. I wonder if my battery is going dead. For the noun, hepes, we'll start with the English word translated as purpose. Okay, so this is the time it's translated as purpose. The first occurrence is in Isaiah 44, 24 through 28. And it's actually, <coughs> we're going to read through it. I just am reading it in context because I don't like just pulling one verse out. So thus says 
Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wisens back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judea, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up you rivers, your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my, what? Purpose. Says, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your, found, your foundations shall be laid. Cyrus is not even in a ruling. He, he's not even on the spectrum. God names him 200, well, not 200, 70 years probably before he even, uh, he even shows up on the scene, right? This is a very specific prophecy. And Cyrus is the one that releases the Jewish captives to go back and rebuild the temple um, <coughs> after the exile. So he, he calls him by name, and he is going to accomplish his purposes. And so we, again, this almost reflects uh, <coughs> in a different twist what's going on in Revelation 17, 17, right? God uses pagan or bad kings to accomplish his purpose of judging uh, Babylon. Here, God uses a pagan king, Cyrus, to accomplish his will or purpose, which is to have the temple and Jerusalem rebuilt, right? And so concerning walking through Cyrus and what he wills, he says this in Isaiah 45, 9 through 10. Woe to him who strives with him who, be, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, <coughs> or your work has no handles? <coughs> Woe to him who says a father that, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Right. So who are you to question what God does in his will? And, and Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 9, and we'll get into that later. But this is part of the illusion that Paul is drawing from when he talks about vessels made for honor and vessels made for dishonor. All right, any thoughts or questions about what we just looked at? So that's a prophetic statement uh, on Cyrus and God using Cyrus to accomplish his will, i.e. rebuilding the temple and returning the Jews to, the, uh, to Israel from the Babylonian exile. <coughs> there is another example, and that's who actually Paul uses in Romans 9. So that he uses Pharaoh, God hardens his heart. And, and yet, as we develop this, right now I'm focusing on God's will and God acting. But I want to remind ourselves that our own will acts in correl correlation. or It doesn't act in opposition because it's 
it, it, who are you? I mean, there's no opposition there. Does that make sense? So it walks in correlation with God's will. I mean, we can try to walk against God's will, but then it's like, it's just, it's laughable. Does that make sense? <coughs> but yeah, Pharaoh would be another example. Isaiah 46. <coughs> oh, don't eat that. Remember this and stand firm. We call it to mind, you transgressors. Transgressor means someone who sins, right? Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, right? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish what? All my purpose calling the board of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from afar. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have proposed, and I will do it. So here we're reminded of our place, right? What are we at the beginning? We're called sinners or transgressors, right? So we're reminded of our place that we are. And then what are we to remember? In the text, what are we to remember there? Who God is. Yeah, he's the creator. He's the, the maker of all things, right? And so this, as, I've been go as I was going through this, it's just like this a humbling experience to continue to remind myself, you know what? Life doesn't revolve around me. Life revolves around God, the creator, the, the maker of the universe, Right? And that he will accomplish his will. He will accomplish his purpose. Right? And so we're talking about very much his immutable will. Like what he has designed to do, he will do. <coughs> so quickly, does that want to work tonight? So the third occurrence for Hepha is, is Isaiah 48, 12 through 14. And it says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and the last. Does that sound familiar? What, what book does that sound like? Revelation. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's where that quote comes from. Right? My hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He sh and it's talking about Israel, Jacob. He shall perform his purpose on who? Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Right? So he is going to destroy Babylon. Isn't that what we see happens? In Revelation 17 something, some form of Babylon, right, is destroyed. Now, Babylon historically, currently, just faded out of history, right? There was no critical event that destroyed Babylon. It just was slowly abandoned, like historically. What are you doing? Ignore the dog. <coughs> Sorry. 
So we again see God accomplishing his purpose, and it's validated by who he is as creator and as all-powerful, his eternality. I am the first and the last. There is none besides me. Questions, thoughts? Hebrew word for hephes is also translated as will twice. Only one of those is, is in the context of God's will. The reference is Isaiah 53.10. So let's take a look at Isaiah 53. We're all familiar with that. Shall, yes, say something. That's a prophecy that we were just in. Yeah. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So this is talking about who? Jesus, that's right, that's, who he, that's the subject of this, these pronouns. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for all transgressions. He was crushed for all iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is like one of the strongest arguments, I think, for pen penal substitution, right? God taking on all punishment uh, in, uh, as Jesus. All we like his sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Kim, could you grab me some batteries out of the, uh, it's the little, the AAA batteries out of the body? Yeah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And here we go. Listen, this is, this is the line here. Yet it was the will of the Lord, or your will of Yahweh, to crush him. He, was put, uh, he has put him to grief. Whoops. Uh, I can probably reuse this, right? I'll be careful. 
And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Okay, so we have two wills, right? We have the Volb will at the very beginning, right? That uh, it's God's will for Christ to what? Suffer, right? And then it's God's will that we should what? Prosper because of his suffering. Page is pretty gross, but it worked. It restuck. <laughs> Lots of sweat on that thing. <laughs> Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall s- he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, making intercession for the transgressors. Psalm 53. Very powerful, prophetic psalm of Jesus' death on the cross and what it accomplished uh, for us. And here we see God's will walk through the suffering servant, walk through Jesus to bring redemption, right, to all who believe. That, that's God's will spoken beforehand, right? Okay, so we looked at the noun, hephes. Uh, now let's look at the noun, rathan. And w- when it's translated as will, we're going to see that these references are in regard to us doing God's will. Okay? The first occurrence is in Ezra 10, 11. And um, this passage here is uh, the Jews had came back from exile, but they were intermarrying um, and compromising their faith through intermarriage. Um, and so God uh, commanded them to, to take care of that. And so um, Ezra tells them, now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and what? Do his will, right? Do his will. And then in this context, his will is separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Okay. That's a very convoluted thing that we could t- discuss if we were studying Ezra, um, but we're not studying Ezra. We're just looking at it for the sake of doing God's will. So um, 
I'm going to resist not to go down that rabbit hole. That's a, it's a very interesting discussion, um, but not for tonight. So the second occurrence is Psalms 48, 40 verse 8. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart, right? So here is not just doing the will, but what's the attitude to doing God's will? Matthew, what's it say? What's the attitude? What's that word right before I what? Delight. Do you know what delight means? Means be happy about, be excited about. Like when you get a new Pokemon or new Legos that you just got put together, you're pretty delighted about that, right? Happy about that? Excited to do it? No? Sometimes? The third occurrence is in Psalm 103, 20 through 21. It says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, what? Who do his will. And this is angels. This is talking about spiritual beings, okay? Um, one of the jobs of spiritual beings, uh, angels, is to minister, right? And uh, they are to bless the Lord, and they are to do his will. The fourth occurrence is Psalm 143.10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So what are we, what's the request? Yeah, to be taught, right? Teach me. So these texts make it clear how important it is to do God's will. And, as in the last one, that it is taught by God. He's asking, teach me to do God's will. And the other key would be, uh, his word is hidden where? In the heart, right? So knowing God's word. That's not talking about our physical heart, right? It's talking about our mind, right? Having that retention in that. Okay, so we've looked at the two nouns in the Hebrew that are translated as purpose or will of God. Now we're going to take a look at verbs, which are translated as will or purpose of God. And we're not going to get through them all tonight because I, uh, I don't have enough time. But we're going to cover the, some. the first is hepes, which would be the counterpart to hepes, which appears in the Old Testament 73 times. But it's only translated four times as will and once as purpose. So we're only going to look at four, five. Okay, uh, We're not going to look at all 73. Aren't you glad? So the first one is in Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills or he will, right? So God is directing. And we really saw that like in the Ten Kings, right, of Revelation. And we saw that with Cyrus. We saw it with Pharaoh, right? He's directing. I think sometimes... We're coming on a political season that I'm dreading. I'm just going to be quite frank 
with you. <laughs> and I have to remind myself that the hand, the, the, the rules of the nations are in the hands of God, and he wills them to do what he needs them to do for his purposes, right? Now, I wish that just totally let me off the hook, but it doesn't. But at least it gives me some sense of peace that even though I stand for the kingdom of God and stand for righteousness and stand for what's right, and I feel like my vote does nothing, I know that God has it in hand. Right? And this verse has always been <laughs> a very good reminder to me of that. The second occurrence is in 1 Samuel 2.25. And we're going to read the story because you have to have the context to understand or to have see what's going on. Now, the sons of Eli, this is in the time of the judges. <laughs> the sons of Eli were worthless men. What kind of men were they? <laughs> they were worthless men. That's important part of the story. They did not, what, know the Lord. They didn't have a relationship with God, but they were priests. That's a problem, okay? <laughs> the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So this is how they got their food, okay? And this is how they did it. Uh, in the law, there was allotted for them to have a portion. And they decided to get their portion this way. Uh, part of this was so that it was random, right? It's in a pot of boiling water, right? You can't really see in there. And you have a, a skewer, a, a trident, you know, and they use <laughs> a three-pronged fork, you know, and you stick it in there and you got to... You got uh, a, ch uh, it's not turkeys, but you get a chunk of, uh, of uh, tenderloin, perfect. You got a chunk of uh, shoulder, oh well, you know, I mean, whatever, okay? So it, it was a random thing to get it out, right? And that's what they did. So, moreover, there was, the fat was born, and the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw so here he's saying the priest these two Hophni's and Phinehas we're going to find out that's their names later on but they're saying give me the choice cut right who was supposed to get the choice cut God and if the man said to him let them burn that fat first and then take as much as you wish he would say no you must give it now and if not I will take it by force. So they're totally abusing their power, right? Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went out with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. 
remember Samuel was dedicated to God. Hannah, his mom, dedicated him to God because uh, God gave him uh, to her as a request because she was could not have children. And so she had Samuel, and she promised to give him to God. And so this is just that continuing, that she was not only giving him to God, but also taking care of him, giving him clothes each year. Then Eli would bless Elikim and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So Hannah is doing God's will, right? She's in right relationship with God. She's being contrasted to who in this story? Hophni and Phinehas, right? They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So not only are they stealing food, they're fornicating. I mean, it's, it's bad to worse, right? I mean, this is the worst pastor ever. He, not only is he manipulating his congregation to, like, give all their money away to him, right? Then he's, like, running off or doing stuff with the secretary. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean... Good thing I'm not guilty of this stuff. I might be feeling pretty odd under the collar, right? And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings to all the pe these people. Now, my sons, it's not good report that I hear among the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was what? The will of the Lord to put them to death. That's hard. They lost their opportunity to witness, uh, to, to repent, right? They were going to die for their sins. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a, a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel? Just talking about the line of Aaron to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offsprings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and your house of your father should go in out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will lightly shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look 
with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this all shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And they die in a battle with the Philistines. And when uh, Eli hears the report of the battle, I'm not going to read it all tonight because we don't have time. Um, And he hears the report, he falls over and breaks his neck because he was very fat. And he dies. And then it says here in verse 45, God will raise up for himself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a show house, and he shall go in and out and be out before my anointed forever. So who's the priest God rose up? Hmm? Yeah, it's Jesus. He's the new high priest, right? But not in the order of Aaron, right? According to the order of who? Melchizedek. So God's will is often difficult to accept, right? But why was it that God, God's will to put Hophni and Phinehas to death? You have an idea, Raiko? No? Okay. They were guilty. <coughs> Deserving a judgment. And but yet we're all guilty, right? But they were blatantly, right, unrepentantly pursuing their own means, even after being reproved, right? And you know Eli didn't just talk to them once about it, right? And you know that nobody else was not saying anything to them, right? But they chose to do their own thing. And God said, okay, (laughs) you choose that, then it is my will for you to die for that and for that hardness of heart. Okay, so the third occurrence we already looked at um, is in Isaiah 53.10, and it was the, uh, it's the world form, which is at the beginning there, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, right? He was put to grief when his soul makes offering for the guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, right? So from death comes life, right? Death comes prosperity. Any questions so far or thoughts? Again, we're just doing a survey. We're just kind of getting all these voices kind of bouncing around in our head to be thinking about God's will because as we go forth, uh, forward, we're going to end up over the next couple weeks doing some systematic theology on will, but I want you to be able to think biblically and scripturally from the references on why we're correlating and building the conclusions that we make. We're not just taking them from a systematic theology book or a a biblical theology book or a Bible dictionary. We're actually saying this is what God says or God's will occurrences communicate to us. Yeah, the verse in Hebrews. Yeah, there's actually two passages in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 talk about not hardening your heart. And 
and, and falling away from God. That's a huge theme through Hebrews, actually. Do not harden your hearts, as the Israelites did in the wilderness. Right? And Hophni and Phinehas definitely hardened their heart against God. And, and the criteria at the very beginning is they did not, what, know the Lord. Right? They didn't have a relationship, and they had no desire to have a relationship with God. Okay, so Isaiah 55.10 says, For the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but, the wa- but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Does everybody get rain at some point, usually? Right? Did it rain on us recently? Had it snow on us recently? How many snow days did you get? Well, Reichel got none because Reichel is uh, homeschooled, right? But Matthew got a couple snow days, right? Did you eat today? Did you have something to eat? What'd you eat? We all ate, right? I had wings for dinner, right? So God is blessing people whether we deserve it or not, right? Okay? That's what this is saying down. Rain, rain and snow come down from heaven. They water the earth. It brings forth its sprouts, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. I see a bunch of eaters. I don't see any farmers. My wife isn't in here and John's not in here. <laughs> well, you do a garden, don't you, Phil? You pretend to, yeah. So the, and so we've got a little sower here. I'm not a sower, I'm an eater. I'll just admit it right up front. So verse eleven. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I what purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's that's a cool thing. I mean we just spoke God's word multiple times tonight. And now we know that it's not going to not accomplish what God has purposed it to do, right? Um, And so we can take uh, some comfort in that. So God's word will accomplish its purpose. It's going to happen. Whatever he wills it will happen. Yeah, the first... in talking about system, uh, yeah, systematic terms, that's common grace. Right? Everybody gets that grace, right? And yet, uh, sometimes that grace can be withheld, right? So, I mean, one of the most prevalent ways, and I don't know if we can, like, we can't distinctly say this in today. It's hard to determine. But a prevalent way that God disciplines Israel, for sure, is what? Drought. Right? You just think, like, uh, Israel is, like, not following God. Ahab is the king. Jezreel is the king, queen. And how long did it not rain for? Three and a half years. Yeah, interesting. Three and a half years. Wh- what's one half of the tribulation time period? Three and a half years. Kind of interesting, those numbers bouncing around like that. All right. So, yeah, so common grace. Uh, withholding that grace or withholding that 
is a form, can be a form of judgment. I would caution saying, well, Ethiopia is being judged by God because they're in a drought. I mean, I just don't know. You don't have the authority in which to say that. Um, but we do have God using uh, weather, especially to discipline Israel specifically and, and sometimes other nations. But I would, if unless God said, I did this, I would not say that Ethiopia right now I th- and Libya is being judged by God, by the drought they're in. And there's actually mass starvation going on over there, and that's really sad because of the war with Ukraine because they bought like 90% of their grain because Ukraine is like the breadbasket of, of Europe. So they bought most of their grain from Ukraine, and because of the war, there's no grain shipping, right? So they're literally starving. So let's recap uh, what we, that was a big tangent, sorry about that, uh, wh- what we've absorbed so far. So first, God is creator, right? So first and last, he's made everything. He's, he stretched out the heavens himself, I mean, right? And therefore, he does what he wills, right? That would be the first thing. God does what he wills because God made everything, right? And so he can do whatever he wants. Now, I would bring us back to that God's very nature is good, so God is not going to do what? Evil. He's not going to do bad things, right? So we always knew that know that God's will is what? Good, right? And our response is the next is, well, the last one, but second, God sometimes uses pagans to accomplish his will, right? We begin with that in Revelation 17, 17, where God puts his purpose in the hearts of the kings, what? To act as vessels or instruments of judgment upon Babylon, the institute Babylon, right? And then we see him use Cyrus, my big fluffy kitty. No, not that guy. That's who he's named after. But we, we, we see him use Cyrus, a pagan king, right? To what? Reestablish Israel in the land, right? To rebuild the temple. He even gives back the loot. I mean, think about it. He's like, okay, call them up. What did we take? Okay, yeah, okay, you got the itemized list. Okay, load it in the wagons, take it back. Isn't that crazy? I mean, and God says, you, I will do this, and I will call him by name, so you will know that I am God, right? And that I do what I will. I do what I want. No, no, that was his, like, like that. No, it's not a generic. Yeah, if, well, they, yeah, if they, and they did. They were reading the book. They had the prophets. I don't know how widely distributed, but they definitely reference, like Ezekiel and Isaiah reference each other. So Ezekiel definitely had this prophecy. Daniel had Jeremiah's writings because he referenced them in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, as written in the prophet Jeremiah, right? So they definitely had writings. I don't know how prolific they were. I mean, it was, you have to understand, it's not like me being able to print out these handouts and hand them out to you. I mean, it was a painstaking process to copy a a writing. But yeah, so they, so yeah, so they would have been, if seeing Cyrus coming down the line, right, they would have been like, oh, wow, this is the time. Which is pretty pretty exciting, you know. 
second and third, God called chief of us or humanity, right, to do his will, right? We are to do his will. And how do we do his will? Two things, belief, right, and obedience, right? We have to believe, and then we need to obey, right? It doesn't go the other way. You don't obey and then believe. You have to believe and then obey. What, do, what are some of the primary things we got to believe? Believe the word, believe that God's sovereign. I, I think really the starting part is believe Isaiah 53 is Jesus walk on the cross for us, right? So we have to have that relationship with God, right, to do God's will, right? And so it, I know it, it's cyclic in the sense that um, <coughs> you believe and then you do and then you believe more, <laughs> right? It's a cycle. Keeps happening stepping into right so we're gonna i don't know how many parts but we're going to continue this survey of the old testament then we'll look at <coughs> how the intertestamental period looked at god's will and formulate it there and then we're going to look at how the new testament uh, processes god's will and then after that we're going to draw some conclusions so we're really i'm just walking you through some observation stages um, and then we'll be in, like, probably four weeks from now, we'll be in a place of making some solid observations and drawing some conclusions and talking about election and things like that. I didn't want to just start talking about election and soteriology, the, the process of salvation, without having a better understanding of how God's will functions in Scripture. Because I think there's a lot of assumptions that we bring to the text. And observations help strip away or correct assumptions. Okay? Any questions or thoughts? Did I put you to sleep? Put him to sleep? He's zonked. Oh, there he is. He's awake. Hi, sleepy boy. He has a bed on the floor he could be fully snuggled in. <laughs> he wants to be on camera. Actually, I think the camera stops like right here. So. That's right. He can watch. Such a good listener. <laughs> <coughs> All right. Any praises or prayer requests? 